Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, one of the most powerful forces reshaping our world is unprecedented mass migration. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. Hello and welcome to your bonus edition of the Politics Joe podcast. This week I sat down with Tory MP and chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, Caroline Noakes. She's also the former immigration minister and she's got some very interesting things to say about the current Home Secretary. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. Good afternoon, Caroline. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. Can I start with the elephant in the room? Which is why are you not at Tory conference? So I haven't been to the Tory conference since 2018 now. And to be honest, it's a bit of light relief for me there's no no burning need for me to be at conference and I can catch up with everything that's happened just as easily through the television and I don't need to subject myself to miserable canapes and warm white wine every single night so it's probably much better for my physical health and indeed my mental health not to be there it's definitely better for my physical health I have to say but um not you not being there me not being there drinking the white wine you're chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee. You didn't think there were any fringes or anything like that that you'd want to attend? Actually, quite a lot of fringes that were interesting. And I always think that when people start talking about the, the conference hall looking empty, actually, it's the fringes that can be the most dynamic, the most exciting, the most interesting bits to do. And it's why I loved doing conference in uh, what would have been 2020 when it was wholly virtual and you could have those great conversations but via Zoom. And to my perspective, actually, if COVID taught us anything, it's that you can have much richer, more varied discussions with a wider variety of people by doing things remotely. 
And is that presumably why you like being in the committee? Because you're in a cross-party committee, so you're hearing a lot of different perspectives or, you know, ones outside your own party. Again, I think every select committee is like that. They're cross-party, they're broadly consensual. doesn't mean that everybody agrees. Of course we don't, but we thrash out the evidence, talk to loads of different um, people who come in and give evidence. And some of those, I always think that the evidence sessions where you have people who are not politicians, who've come from the outside world and come in and give their expert perspective or their lived experience are some of the most enlightening, some of the most interesting. Um, Over the course of the past year, we've had some great people in, particularly in the inquiry into misogyny in sport, where we had a Team GB rower, where we had uh, representatives of the three hijabis who were just talking about the experiences that they had had. Fern Whelan came in, a former England footballer, talking about the experience of trying to take her son to... um, matches into training and there never being enough facilities for women and you know that's it's very real and it's impacting women in sport every single week I and mean, we only saw last week didn't we tower hamlets removing from a girl's team the uh, right to some astro pitches for their training and you just think this this happens the whole time still is that women are made somehow secondary to men mm. well that was an admin error apparently allegedly mm. apparently <laughs> I mean, you also hear a lot of harrowing content. I mean, being on the Women and Equality Select Committee, you're hearing, you're hearing a lot about sexual assault. And you had probably one of the most eye-opening reports I think I've ever read earlier this year, which was a report into childbirth and a report into how four times as many black women are dying during childbirth than white women. I mean, what's that like, being on the receiving end of that sort of information? So it was... Um I think the the really effective campaign that was run by both Five Times More and the Motherhood Group talking, black women talking about the experiences that they had had in childbirth that enormously, I was going to say touch me, didn't just touch me, touched the whole committee, listening to women using the phrase that they weren't being listened to, that uh, when their husbands spoke during childbirth, they would notice them being paid more attention than than the mother who's actually physically giving birth. And, you know, it's not just that report. We spoke to um, victims of so-called honour-based abuse for one of our most recent reports. Just horrific, having women come in, some of them um, giving evidence not as part of the formal committee, but having a roundtable with them um, during the process, listening to their their stories. Unbelievably harrowing to know that that's that's still happening in the UK now that women are still afraid to report that sort of abuse um and afraid to report it whether it be to social services whether it be to the police a real terror and a terror within their own community that somehow for them to report that abuse would bring shame and dishonor upon their own families which is why they were reluctant to do so and you know, there's a lot of a lot of issues that the committee tackles that are incredibly sensitive, really important, and go both underreported and to a large extent ignored by the wider population. And and so you know, sometimes we do inquiries that are not easy, um, that are hugely controversial, but we have a responsibility to look at all the different protected characteristics, look at what 
um, the GEO is delivering for people with protected characteristics and addressing equalities issues across government. It's a hell of a responsibility. How do you tackle, you, you just said that, you know, a lot of the time it's because women feel afraid or ashamed to, you know, to speak out. How do you tackle that? How do you quantify that? You know, you're a member of parliament, but how do you legislate for women feeling embarrassed to speak about how they've been treated? Well, I think there are, um, there's some really important bits of both legislation and reviews, reports that I like to think will give women confidence going forward. I can highlight the, uh, the Domestic Abuse Act, really groundbreaking. It doesn't mean that I think it's perfect. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's massive strides in the right direction. But also things like the Casey review into the Metropolitan Police. And I've been quite outspoken about the Met. And I absolutely recognise that the vast majority of Metropolitan Police officers are doing a horrendously difficult job, one that you know, most of us would really struggle to do. But you have to look at the Casey review. You have to look at the evidence of um, the horrendous incidents at Charing Cross Police Station, at the dreadful examples of both uh, Wayne Cousins and David Carrick, the words of Samart Rowley saying that there are huge numbers of police officers that he wouldn't trust to interact with the public, but he couldn't get rid of. And you know that by shining a light on that, by bringing it out into the open, hopefully you are giving women more confidence to come forward and report. But I think it's a long, long journey. And and I think we all look at it and think, if that happened to me, if that happened to a loved one of mine, would, would I have the confidence to speak out? Would I have um, the ability to engender in somebody else the confidence to speak out? And And you hope that the answer to that is going to be, Yes. Um, and the reality is that we know it takes a long time for incidents of sexual violence to uh, come to court, that when it does come to court, it can be re-traumatising for the victim. I think there's been real progress when it comes to things like videoed evidence, but still a narrative that oh, well, videotaped evidence isn't as good as having the victim there in court in person. And, and you know that video evidence can encourage, if that's the right word, persuade um, a perpetrator to plead guilty earlier. And that's a good thing. That is absolutely a good thing because that is an admission of guilt and then it gives the victim some closure. But the stark reality is, is that when you, and I have heard it direct from barristers, it's not as good as in-person evidence. You just feel that it's layering another load of pressure on, on victims. And we have to find ways, really effective ways, to lift that pressure and to send a message to women that you're going to be believed. Um, and this isn't you on trial. This is the perpetrator on trial. But do you think when it becomes a show trial, when it becomes a spectacle, that might be the part that women are afraid of contributing? You know, they, honestly, I don't know many women. I, I would probably warn a woman against reporting something if I thought it was going to make its way into the press? Oh, look, victims have the right to anonymity, mm. but we know from some pretty high-profile incidents over the past couple of years that all too often a victim's identity will make its way out onto social media um, and then it'll be trialled by public opinion as opposed to trial by a jury. 
Um, and I mean, my message always has to be, I'm quite the opposite of you. I would always encourage people to go to the police. I would always encourage them to press charges. I think that's so important because we have to start tackling kind of the underlying cultures that have allowed violence against women and girls to to perpetuate, to, to carry on. And you have to start really pushing back hard against this narrative that, um, you know, that, that women make false claims to in somehow way damage uh, perpetrators, that women make false claims for attention, that women make false claims for whatever reason. Women tend not to make false claims. That is a vanishingly small number. Um, but what many women, unfortunately, feel is the pressure if they choose if they choose to press charges uh, and many too many don't mm. and I don't blame them for that I really don't but we have to work out whether it's through um, ISVAs or IDVAs how we can put the right support in place to engender in them the confidence to come forward why do you think those voices are so loud the voices that are claiming a lot of women are making false false claims Oh, look, I think that's a really tough question, and I think it's uh, I think it's cultural. I think um, I do think the media has a role to play in that, in giving platforms to some individuals. Fortunately, fewer. And look, I was reading something from um, Internet Matters this morning that was saying something like twenty percent of young boys, so teenagers, think that individuals like Andrew Tate um, have a you know, have a, a credible position. Um, and, and I thought that was bad enough until I read the figures for young fathers. So I think it was men between the ages of 24 and 34, something horrific, like 56% of them felt that Andrew Tate's opinions were right. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a man who just spouts rampant misogyny. And half of young dads think that he's right, that he's got a point. And it just shows you how far we have to go still in getting equality for girls, in encouraging all of our young people to treat each other with respect. And it's why I care so passionately about uh, RSHE. It's why uh, I was, as I would always say, an early conservative adopter of making RSHE a statutory part of the curriculum. And it has to be relevant to 21st century young people. Um, and it has to be about empowering girls and boys to understand consent and to make sure that they respect it. And I do think, um, and it was something that I think the select committee said quite recently was about, you have to make RSHE inclusive for boys as well as girls. Mm. There can't just be a focus on teaching girls what consent is. We have to teach boys as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much in there. I, I wanted to talk to you about, I, I think that, Andrew Tate and this courting of conspiracy theories that's been going on online is probably one of the most frightening things that I think it could possibly be happening. And I, I, I do think it's something that's ignored by Parliament. I don't know if it's necessarily on purpose. I think that perhaps um, some MPs haven't grasped how, how serious the situation is. I don't think, well, I'd actually like to hear your opinion. Do you think the online safety bill is going to go anywhere near close to where it should do on tackling it? Because what it is really, it's this sort of, it's the free run that you have on the internet. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And mm. look, there's a, there is a fine line, isn't there, between wanting to have an internet that is safe for our young people and not wanting to censor people. And if you were to wind the clock back, I don't know, I'd probably have to say 30 years now, um, it simply didn't exist. So if somebody held extreme misogynist views, and we'll use them as an example, but they could be you know, extreme conspiracy theories on anything, couldn't it? Whether man had landed on the moon, whether you know, we were all in fact lizard people, whether the royal family were lizards, um, you'd find an idiot spouting in the pub, wouldn't you? But they didn't have a platform on which they could publish and espouse their views to potentially millions of people. And I can remember when um, Nadine Dorries was Secretary of State for Culture, she actually came across as somebody who was prepared to take some really difficult decisions to grasp that nettle and put things in the um, online safety bill that were designed to protect our children. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing. We want to protect children from this. And it, I mean, it, it struck me that it began to look a bit sort of Christmas tree that everybody was trying to hang their own particular bauble off it. And that gets challenging in itself. But Nadine used to use a phrase um, about making it, the online safety bill had to be future-proofed. And, and I think that's really challenging because you can guarantee, even if we were able, and I think that's hugely challenging, to get all of the big uh, social media platforms to... Uh, I kind of adhere to things like age verification, even if we were able to get them to tackle the content that is legal but harmful so that children can't access it. It's only a matter of days, weeks probably, before people have invented the new platform that circumvents all of that. And so I think you know the Wild West is there and it's hugely difficult to come up with any piece of legislation through the the corridors of Westminster that tackles it. Because you have to remember, MPs are not expert in this. Everyone wants us to be experts on everything and we're not. We're you know, Some of us are expert on a few things. Others, you know, they're really clever, are expert on lots of things, but not one single person in Westminster is expert on everything. Mm. And, you know, there'll be some little tech wizard sat in his mum's back bedroom designing ways around everything. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Shut the fridge. It's the Politics Show podcast. Well, it's also a power dynamic, right? Do you think that maybe, you know, you would expect, I think that the normal person would expect that an MP has just as much power as a tech company. 
but would you, do you think that, I mean, that is skewed? <laughs> yeah, so I, I always, look, and I shouldn't invoke the spirit of my dad, um, but when I was a cabinet minister, he was the leader of the local council and he used to look at me and laugh and say, you think you've got power. He said, if I decide something, it happens. What happens if you decide something, darling? And I went, oh, well, <laughs> the usual channels, you know, we'll spend hours, weeks, months, years trying to change things. And I think that's one of the real, real challenges of Westminster is that there is an assumption that there are 60, 650 MPs in there who are making decisions on a daily basis that are changing things. And that is far from the reality of it. And I'm just going to give you a really anodyne example. So over the course of the weekend, I've had uh, a number of emails talking about uh, dangerous dogs legislation and a real belief from some of my constituents that I am sat talking to experts and drafting that legislation. And of course, I'm not. The legislation is being drafted by DEFRA. And yeah, they are talking to expert panels, but there will be um, there'll be a wide range of views on whether you can outlaw a dog that's a type, not a breed, and how you're going to define the type. And, and for those of my constituents that own XL bullies, they're really angry that anyone's trying to get rid of their preferred sort of dog. And yet the vast majority of people are looking at dog attacks, looking at horrific, I mean, just horrific footage of what dogs with a, uh, a bite pressure of 300 plus pounds per square inch can do um, and saying, please do something. And, and then you're left in this sort of horrible situation as an MP. You want to do something, but you want to get it right. And, and sometimes the clunky machine of government, machinery of government means that you, you either wait months or you rush something through running the risk of it not being fit for purpose or the law of unintended consequences. And whatever you put in place could make the situation worse. You have the opportunity to scrutinize that when it comes to... to we will comments. indeed, yes. But then how do you make the decision of, you know, which side of the argument you're going to fall on? You... Oh, look, there's <laughs> loads and loads of different uh, and competing pressures there. So, look, um, everyone uses the phrase to lobby an MP as if it's somehow a dirty word. But actually, much of that lobbying will come from organisations. If we stick with dangerous dogs as the example, from organisations like the Dogs Trust, like the RSPCA, from DEFRA themselves, you know, there'll be some brilliant briefings from them as to why they're trying to do what they're trying to do. And I think we all know why. It's the how that's the question. So how will I make up my mind? You know, when it comes to something like that, which clearly has got um, feelings running very high in the constituency, I'll read all of it um, and and try to come to a balanced view. And that may well be. And look, I have a, a track record of looking at some issues and not necessarily just doing what the whips tell me. And I think that that matters. People expect their MPs to have inquiring minds, to not just faithfully accept whatever they're told. Because if you did that, then, you know, you'd never have seen amendments to things like the Domestic Abuse Act that were tabled on a cross-party basis by Mark Garnier and Harriet Harman um, about getting rid of the rough sex defence. And so you have to be prepared to challenge. You have to be prepared to push back. Or to be quite frank, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter, would it? The outcomes of elections wouldn't matter in sending an individual to Parliament to act on behalf of the, you know, in my case, the good people of Romsey and Southampton North. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it really matters that you're prepared to have the guts to not just accept what you're told at face value and go along with it. See, this all seems very sensible and very nuanced. <laughs> and then I expect that 
if you just decide to take this issue to social media, it might have a, a different reaction. It might have a more knee-jerk reaction. Um, we were talking before we came on, we talked we talk briefly about some of the the treatment that MPs or some of the responses that they get on social media. I mean, would you say that social media was a safe place for MPs or particularly female MPs? No, no, I wouldn't. And um, it's very difficult to, to learn how to navigate it. Uh, and there are, there are so many social media mouths to feed now. And that's the stark reality is that I was taking a load of criticism from um, a man a couple of weeks ago for not posting on Twitter about, so I can't even remember what the subject was. Um, and I just replied to him saying, I'm not going to be dictated to by anyone as to what I should and should not put on social media and whether it be Facebook, Insta, Twitter or whatever I'm meant to call it now, X, um, LinkedIn even. Somebody sent me a horrible bilious message on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn? On LinkedIn. I know. I always thought LinkedIn was the safe wow. space. Um, I blocked him. Uh, so <laughs> the, the stark reality is, is that, um, and I always say this, that, People who send vile messages via social media who troll you, um, that they're easy to mute, they're easy to block. Uh, I then sometimes get accused of blocking people unnecessarily. Well, to be quite frank, don't mistake my f Facebook page for your own. It's mine. I'll have on it what I want. Um, but it, it, it can be frightening. It can be intimidating. I mean, it doesn't intimidate me. I just you know, block and delete. They are my friends. Um, but it, it can be really difficult. And, and talking to other colleagues, you know, it's that doom scrolling. Therese Coffey did something marvellous for me. The morning after I became immigration minister, I was, there was a particular issue had blown up and my phone was just alive with Twitter notifications. And I just literally went, how do I, I this has to stop. I'll go mad if I start reading all of this. And so I passed my phone to Therese and she turned notifications off for me. And my life instantly became much more peaceful. And so, look, I will use social media in broadcast very seldom. I won't say never. You get in terrible trouble for saying never if somebody can then disprove it. Um, I will very seldom reply to any of it. Sometimes I'll reply if something's funny or interesting or enlightening. But what's the point in feeding the trolls? None whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And most of them do not come from your own constituency. Most of them are in far-flung parts of the country. Uh, and as I alluded to earlier, they're sat in their mum's back bedroom with nothing better to do. Hobbies are great, you know. But it must have an effect. Oh, I've got a hide of rhinoceros now. So no, it doesn't have an effect on me. And when all else fails, the dog still needs to go for a walk. Um, and I find that, you know, get out, clear your head, go for a run, uh, do anything because actually... Social media is not the real world. Um, and most of the people that you meet in the real world, certainly in my constituency, are charming, polite, interesting, thoughtful. You don't get very much of that on social media. Is it an issue that comes up during your select committee duties? I mean, particularly anonymity. Do you think anonymity has an effect on how we interact online? Yeah, I think it does. And I think I spoke, oh gosh, going back to the horrible days of the hybrid parliament, I can remember doing... Um, and I can't even remember what it was. It, I thought I'd spoken in the chamber, but I was definitely in a committee room, but maybe we were sort of live broadcasting from different parts of the palace at the time about specifically about 
anonymity. And there, there is a good argument about why in some instances you need people to be able to have anonymity online, uh, particularly when it comes to things like, I don't know, and the minister at the time, and I think the minister at the time is Caroline Dynage, was talking about the, the importance of being able to preserve some sort of anonymity online if people were reporting abuse online. Okay, so I'll, I'll get that there's a case for it. But actually, when you look at um, the vast amount of sort of abusive, offensive content that you get, it comes from people who are afraid to give their identity. Why? Well, because they're about to say something online that they wouldn't have the guts to say in real life. That's the stark reality of it. Um, and so I think there are really good arguments in favor of at least being able to verify people's identity, even if it's just the platforms themselves. Um, because I'm always astonished. Some of the most bilious comments that I get will be from people who have uh, like four followers. Yeah, and numbers for names. And numbers for names. Mm. It was a big conversation after Caroline Flack passed. You know, there was a, there was a serious consideration um, from many MPs about verification and about not necessarily, but, you know, taking away your anonymity online, but having some way to prove that you were a real person and could be held accountable if you'd done something awful. Do you think that we should reconsider that conversation? I think we need to be constantly alive to that conversation. And, and the horrible, horrific thing is there'll, there'll be another victim. There really will be. And, and some of the worst things are, is, it's not even grammatically correct, young people, children, children using social media and not having the resilience to be able to cope with pylons um, from people with numbers for names. Mm -hmm. And that's the stark reality is that it becomes, uh, just it becomes like some sort of blood sport, doesn't it? Um, hounding people. And, and it's really easy for tough old bags like me to laugh it off really easy. But sometimes it's teenagers who haven't got that emotional resilience, who look at attacks online and, and it, it's their whole world. And, and that's terrifying. And, you know, it's a, a genie that had not been let out of the box when I was a teenager. And I, I look back on my own daughter's teenage years and think, you know, thank goodness she came through that unscathed. Mm. Do you think, um, do you think there's a safe place to go to or there are mechanisms in place for, for even young children, but even adults who find themselves at the, within a pylon? No, no, I don't think there are safe spaces for them. My best advice is the safe spaces offline, mm. real people, do you know, go to the pub go and meet up with your friends in real life. I can remember, and I mean, this is 15 years ago, my daughter's head teacher at the time using this brilliant analogy is that um, in real life, when you talk to somebody, you see their reaction. You learn to empathize through looking at how your words can make somebody feel happy, feel sad, feel hurt. And the problem with social media is that you can type something. You never see the reaction. You don't know what you're doing to that individual. So look, I, I always think of it about, you know, me and my sister, we used to fight like cat and dog, but I'd always know when I'd pushed it too far because you would see hurt in her eyes. Mm. That does not happen 
online. And that's why it's such such a difficult space to be. And it's where where bullies get empowered and encouraged because there'll always be somebody else in the mob whipping them up without any ability to see what it's actually doing to another human being. Mm. You've had quite the weekend. And you're not bothered? Not remotely. I mean, you know, some of it is genuinely funny. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is designed to be really, really hurtful. It doesn't work. And... Um, you know, I am now the Antichrist because I forgot one stupid interview that I did over 18 months ago. Uh, and that's made me a pathological liar, apparently. Um, you know, we're all human. I genuinely didn't think that I ever had been interviewed by one of my colleagues. Apparently I have. Um, and I sort of, I look back on it. Every day's a learning day, isn't it? So it's been a weekend, but it's, it's left me unbothered. It's just, it's, it's interesting that you, you have to be the, um, the picture of perfection. Yeah, and you MP can't. Now. You just can't be. You're all human. So look, and, and I'm really pleased that you use the word picture because not only do you have to be some intellectual powerhouse, but if you're a woman in politics, you have to look perfect as well. So most of the bile that gets directed at me is absolutely nothing to do with what I say. Gave him a bit of a gift last week, didn't I? Um, but most of the abuse I get will be about how I look, how fat I am, uh, whether I'm wearing too much makeup or not enough, what clothes I was wearing. Why did she choose to pitch up and be interviewed in a horrible bright pink jumper? Because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, and I hope you're not talking about that jumper. It's a yeah, you know, I love this, but I, I somebody, will, somebody will have a poke about this jumper. Um, and, you know, it's one of my go-to comfort clothes it's all snuggly and nice um so look that's i think that's one of the huge pressures is that to be an mp now you you have to be pretty much perfect none of us are perfect we're all human i can remember a, a child asking me that uh, and i think it was in the 2010 election campaign do you think you're a role model and i replied i'm never going to put myself on a pedestal real dangerous space that I am a flawed human being. I know what my vices are. Um, fortunately, so does most of the rest of the world. Um, and look, it's, it, it's tough and it's tough for younger MPs. And, and actually I think it, it's got tougher year on year. Um, and so whilst I desperately, desperately want more women to be brave enough to go into politics, I recognize that it's a hell of a, decision to be brave enough to stand for election Mm. why do you bother doing it oh because i love romsey in southampton north um it's home it's where i grew up it's where i've lived pretty much all my life and i love the job i love the people um the best bit of the job is undoubtedly the the small changes that you can get for people the the things that you do as a constituency mp that actually make a difference to people's lives um, and I love that bit. Um, I also, I kind of like the House of Commons chamber. Um, it's, yeah, sure, you know, Wednesday lunchtime, it's a bit of theatre and the only bit that ever gets televised. But when you go in there and and I'm going to use as an example a Labour Opposition Day debate that we had back in uh, July time talking about disposable vapes. And what you found in the chamber that day was real consensus about here is a problem with younger and younger children 
accessing vapes that are in flavors designed to appeal to children, brightly colored, pocket money, cash to buy them. And, and the labor motion wasn't bad, but it did miss out some really crucial things like, you know, why are you allowed price promotions on vapes and you're not on baby milk? Why are you um, allowed to advertise them? Why are they on the ends of um, kind of supermarket uh, shelves, which we know are the kind of like the high profile selling points? You wouldn't be allowed to put cigarettes there, would you? And we know that they're potentially more addictive than cigarettes. And so, look, I for me, that was a really good example of the house coming together and and properly debating what could be done to tackle the challenge of children using vapes almost as a gateway to smoking instead of what vapes absolutely should be, which is a mechanism to get off nicotine eventually or to get off cigarettes or tobacco at the very least. So um, that's why I carry on doing it. For those moments that you suddenly go, oh, this is it. This is, this is democracy actually having a difference. And what do we see now? The government's going to ban disposable vapes. So, you know, it's all kind of... It all comes together to make a big picture of why the job is still worthwhile. You've always seemed to me to be an MP who's very interested in policy and very interested in actually being a member of parliament. Like, you don't seem to be that interested in the culture war. I'm not interested in the culture war. Um, and I think it's a huge mistake to think that culture wars will lead to anybody changing the way they vote. I don't think they will. Um, and I think when it comes to general elections, people will make their decisions based on who they trust to run the economy, uh, what their views are on potholes. It's my favourite example at the moment. You know, the, the state of the NHS about education, about defence spending, about nature and the environment. You know, people will make their decisions on how they're going to vote based on, and I hate to say this, the same old, same old big issues that sway them at every election. And I look at culture wars and trying to kind of find those fault lines and the wedge issues and drive division. And I think actually we're all better than that. And we have a wonderfully diverse society in this country of people who all care about the economy. They all care about whether they can afford their rent or their mortgage. They all care about whether they are secure in their employment Um, and... And I don't think very many people will make up their mind how to vote based on gender-neutral toilets or statues or any of the other issues that are being um, pushed to the fore. Do you think you would have struggled being an immigration minister under the current Home Sec? I wouldn't be the immigration minister under the current Home Secretary. Couldn't do the job. I, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I was the last immigration minister to make a commitment to uh, resettlement programs. I look back at the vulnerable persons resettlement scheme and that was an absolute, I mean, a difficult, I was going to say it was an absolute triumph. I don't know that we're going to go that far. It was a really difficult um, program that found the most vulnerable with UNHCR and enabled those people to have... um, a secure path to the UK and safety. And in many instances, they were people with disabled children. They were people who were illiterate in their own language. They were the ones with um, the most need of 
help. And they were they were put through um, the cultural orientation program. They were helped with English language. And, you know, I used to travel around the country meeting people who had been resettled here and listen to their stories and see the difference that we had made to their lives. And, you know, the, the VPRS and the Vulnerable Children's Resettlement Scheme was absolutely the right thing to do. And we talk about safe and legal routes now, but there are vanishingly few of them unless you are from Ukraine, unless you're a British overseas passport holder, unless you are uh, or were an Afghan interpreter. And the the gateway and mandate schemes for um, family reunification. You know the roots of the UK are small, and so I don't think that the Home Secretary is wrong when she says this is a global uh, migration challenge. She's right. Go to Jordan, go to Turkey, and see the millions of people living in refugee camps there. Um, look at the situation on Greek islands. Uh, in Italy and Spain, there is a massive, massive challenge. And if we think that people are fleeing war and persecution now, just wait until climate change change means we start running out of water. The situation is only going to be exacerbated. And the solution has to come with working with our European neighbours um, and indeed globally. And it has to be about in-region aid um, as opposed to thinking that you can solve this once those boats are on the channel. You can't. And I get um, I get really upset when I get correspondence. And I do get correspondence from people telling me, that, you know, what, what's the Royal Navy for? That it, we need to send frigates to the channel. They only need to be lightly armed. And I just read that and go, we're shooting people now, aren't we? Of course we're not. Um, we need to find better mechanisms to stop dinghies from being launched from French beaches. It's really challenging working with the French. Um, and I, I know that. I think I stood on a snowy beach in January in Calais talking to my French counterpart about what more we could do. And that was back in 2019. You know, the numbers are off the charts since. And so the, the start reality is this is a huge challenge, but I don't think tough rhetoric here is necessarily the solution. How do you feel then when some of your conservative colleagues say that people should F off back to France? Well, look, there's a huge challenge with that, isn't there? We came out of the EU, we left the Dublin agreement, um, and so it, it then means that you have to have bilateral agreements to see um, those who have no, no right to claim asylum in the UK returned either to their country of origin or to the safe countries that they've passed through. And without Dublin, you're a bit stuffed there. I think the agreement with Albania is good. And and we need to see more of that. And I don't know that I could produce stats that backed it up. But anecdotally, it sounds as if the number of young Albanian men coming over on dinghies has dramatically reduced because they know there is a fast track system to send them straight back to Albania. Um, and we need more of that. But look, I did the job for 18 months. Returns agreements were possibly the bane of my life because you would think that you had secured a returns agreement with you know, country X only to discover months down the line that actually the ink hadn't ever dried on the piece of paper. And even if you had the returns agreement, even if you had agreement from 
you know, governments uh, from around the globe that they would document their own people who were here, they wouldn't turn up and do it. And it's really hard to return people when you have they have no papers and no passport from their home country, uh, when their home country won't even speak to us, um, or perhaps worse than that, will speak to us and will sort of, you know, keep us stringing along thinking that a returns agreement is in place. So it's really hard. And you know, anyone who says that the issue of um, migration and asylum is straightforward and easy and this is going to be quickly and easily solved, it's just wrong. It's really, really difficult. And I think I went into the job of immigration minister somewhat naively thinking, you know, we, we're just going to solve this. We're going to solve returns. Um, it's m much harder than anyone would ever think. But it's a vote winner. Well, is it? It's a vote winner if you can deliver on it. Thanks for listening to this week's bonus version of the Politics Joe podcast. If you've got any thoughts or feelings, you can tell us at Politics Joe on Twitter, on X, on Instagram, wherever you'd like to go. We've also got a great subreddit if you're into memes. Anyway, thanks. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.